Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to this episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael G. Van of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today I'll be talking with Scott Latterman, a professor of history at the University of Minnesota Duluth, which I've been told has the best surfing in the Midwest. More on why that is relevant later on. He is the author of Tours of Vietnam, War, Travel Guides, and Memory from Duke University Press, 2009. Four Decades On, Vietnam, the United States, and the Legacies of the Second Indochina War, also from Duke 2013, and he co-edited that with Edwin A. Martini. Imperial Benevolence, U.S. Foreign Policy and American Popular Culture Since 9-11, from University of California Press 2018, co-edited with uh, Tim Grunewald, and The Silent Majority Speech, Richard Nixon, the, the Vietnam War, and the Origins of the New Right, from Rutledge 2019. But today we'll be talking about his book, Empire in Waves, A Political History of Surfing, University of California Press, 2014. Scott Letterman, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be with you. Yeah, and it's it's great to have you on here. And I've I've wanted to get you on this uh, uh, for a while to talk about Empire in Waves uh, for a number of reasons, Um, both because it's an excellent book, but also because 2020 has been such a horrifying year. I mean, we started with a war scare with Iran. Then there was uh, the first inklings of the pandemic and then the shelter in place, uh, the pandemic-induced economic crises, um, several horrible cases of murders of black men and women by, uh, by police, the subsequent demonstrations, national debates on this, the uh, several riots, and behind this all, the ongoing environmental crisis. And, and whatever else 2020 has in store for us, there's probably a meteor reorienting its, its trajectory headed towards us. Um, so I thought it would be really nice to talk about something fun in apolitical surfing. Hey, I'm a second generation surfer who's made far too many career choices based on access to good waves and, and surfing. So why not talk about a fun book about surfing? But then I remembered Empire and Waves is a political history. A political history of surfing. It's about imperialism, white supremacy, apartheid, Cold War politics in Southeast Asia, and the ways in which neoliberalism commodifies culture and sucks the life out of everything I love. So, Scott, thanks. You've ruined my plans for a little escape. You know, of course I'm joking here, but not really. And in the introduction of the book, you you state that, quote, surfing is not mindless entertainment, but a cultural force born of empire reliant on Western power and invested in neoliberal capitalism. And that, that sentence really sums up the book so nicely. So before we get into the book and the, the politics of surfing, please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this political history of surfing. Sure. I'd be happy to. Um, well, <clears throat> I do live now in Duluth, Minnesota, uh, which is, I think the surfing capital of the Midwest. Certainly we get the best waves in the Midwest here. Uh, you have to pay for it. It's very cold. 
Um, but, uh, but I did grow up on the ocean. I, I was born and raised in LA. I grew up on the west side of LA. Um, and like you, I made many of my decisions in life based on proximity to the ocean, whether I could surf or not. And I, uh, I went to uh, college at UC Berkeley, or at least I finished at UC Berkeley. I spent a couple of years in Santa Cruz at Cabrillo College first, uh, made my way up to, to Berkeley. And when I was at Berkeley, I spent a summer as an editorial intern at Surfer Magazine. This was in the early 1990s. And it was a great summer. I mean, I loved it. I had a great time. Um, it was tough. I, I was living in LA at the time, so I had to commute down to Orange County, uh, down to Dana Point. Um, which was a bit of a drag, but but it was worth it. The people I worked with were great. You know, with the editors, we'd take surf breaks during the day. A lot of basketball was played. Um, we had a good time, and and I learned a lot. One of the things um, that occurred to me, though, when I was working at at Surfer for that summer, was that the way that I understood Indonesia as a surfer, and this is something we'll talk about later in the program, I'm sure. Um, but Indonesia, you know, I can say here now quickly is is probably the premier international surfing destination. I mean, it is a place of you know thousands of islands, um, many of which have world class surf, and surfers have flocked there since the early 1970s, late 1960s, early 1970s. Yeah, I, I was supposed to be going there next week, but I had oh, to I'm cancel. sorry. <laughs> there are larger problems in the world other than my surf trip, but I was I on my way. There are. <laughs> um, so as a surfer, I knew a lot about Indonesia as this world-class surfing destination. But at the same time, I had become increasingly active in a number of human rights issues, one of which was the Indonesian occupation of East Timor. And it occurred to me that the image that I had of Indonesia as a surfer was very different from the image I had of Indonesia as a human rights activist. And I found that perplexing. Um, and I was curious about it. And it's something I realized I wanted to explore. So when I was working at, at Surfer for that summer as an intern, one of the things I tried to do was prod the editors a bit to, to complicate that surfing image of Indonesia, you know, what I call the surfing imagination when it comes to Indonesia. It's this you know, uh, unspoiled land of, of perfect waves and smiling brown people who welcome you know, the very, white very, very exotic and... Very exotic. Volcanoes right. and palm trees. Yeah. You know, and, and in the, you know, the 1980s, 1990s, 1970s, for that matter, you couldn't pick up a surfing magazine and not see a piece on Indonesia that, that suggested just that, you know, pictures of flawless waves and the, the smiling local people, glad to have surfers there um, in their homeland. And I wasn't very successful in getting the magazine, magazine to think a little bit more broadly about what Indonesia in fact, was like. I mean, as a human rights activist, I knew this was a place that was responsible for widespread human rights violations. Um, but I couldn't really get the magazine to, to go in that direction. Then a couple of years later, I was no longer an intern at Surfer, um, but a couple of Timorese human rights activists won the Nobel Peace Prize. And I thought this might be a nice opportunity now for Surfer to complicate that portrait of Indonesia. And so I went back to the editors and I said, hey, how about I just write up as a freelancer a piece on the awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize to these Timorese activists who are battling against Indonesian occupation, nonviolently, but nevertheless resisting that Indonesian occupation. And they said, sure, which delighted me. 
So I spent a lot of time doing research, interviewing some human rights activists. I tried to interview Indonesian officials at the, the consulate in San Francisco, but they wouldn't speak with me. Um, in the end, I wrote up a piece that I thought was a pretty good piece, and I sent it into the magazine, and then they just buried it. They never ran it. And it's possible that I wrote something that really didn't merit publication. Um, but I actually thought it was a pretty decent piece. And to this day, I still think it probably had more to do with that insistence on maintaining that image of Indonesia as a surfing paradise. Um, then it, it had more to do with that than, than with anything else. And so that raised all sorts of questions for me. Things I you know, wasn't prepared to research and answer at that time, but I sort of filed away in the back of my mind and thought, hmm, you know, depending on what I do in life, maybe I'll come back to this at, at some point. And so I graduated from college. I worked for a few years, and then I went back to graduate school um, to get a PhD, not looking at surfing, but focusing on tourism and memory in post-colonial Vietnam, which became that first book that you mentioned, Tours of Vietnam, War Travel Guides and Memory. And after I, I wrote that book and published that book and I got tenure, I decided maybe I'll pick up the surfing thing again. And it seems to me like a good post-tenure project because surfing doesn't always have a very positive image in the minds of other scholars who tend to dismiss it as, you know, this, this thing of irrelevance, right? As, as, a sec, as a second generation surfer and second generation professor, yes. <laughs> right. Professional suicide. <laughs> it is. It seemed like professional suicide. Exactly. And so I said, you know, well, now that I have tenure, I don't need to worry yep. about it. <laughs> and so I decided to, to go for it. And I explored a number of different facets of surfing, threw them all together in this book called Empire and Waves, which I ended up publishing in 2014 and was very pleasantly surprised by the reception, which has been overwhelmingly, um, extraordinarily positive. Um, people actually took surfing much more seriously than I expected they might. And, and that pleased me. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've taught it several times in graduate seminars and it works very, very well. Um, and one of the questions I had was sort of on the larger field of the history of sport. So Empire of Waves came out as part of the University of California Press's series on sports in world history. And so I've taught your book. I've also taught Walter Lefebvre's Michael Jordan and the New Global Capitalism and Laurent Dubois' book, uh, Soccer Empire, the World Cup and the Future of France. They're all you know, excellent scholarly studies of sports history. There's also some excellent work on Muhammad Ali and you know, fabulous films on the history of sports, such as When We Were Kings about the um, Ali-Frazier rumble in the jungle in, uh, in uh, Zaire amazing documentary on the boxer Jack Johnson called Unforgivable Blackness. And recently, Felix Biederman of Chapo Trap House fame made a short documentary called um, uh, Fighting in the Age of Loneliness, which is essentially a Marxist critique of mixed martial arts. Can you speak to the historiography of sports? And, you know, in, in this post-Colin Kaepernick moment, it may seem like an obvious question, but how can sports serve as a lens for exploring larger historical issues? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, you know, I should qualify this by saying I'm not a historian of sport. I did write a book on surfing, um, but I did it really as, as somebody who was a historian of American foreign relations, excuse me, who had a personal interest in surfing, having grown up surfing, you know, done it for most of my life and, and managed to combine those things. Um, but I, you know, at least passingly familiar with, with sport history. Um, and certainly, I mean, I can tell you that, you know, sport is, is one of those areas that people often turn to as an escape, but in fact is you know, 
deeply vested in some of the modern phenomena of our world. You know, when you think about the Olympic Games, for example, it's hard not to think about nationalism um, or the nationalism that might be on display with soccer matches in, in Europe. Um, it's hard not to think about sport without thinking about issues of race, class, gender, sexuality, um, you know, given the, you know, often the hyper-masculinity of sport, particularly when we're talking about men here, um, you know, race, the Colin Kaepernick phenomenon, I think is, a, you know, extremely important one. Um, you know, we're paying attention to that now, of course. Um, but Colin Kaepernick was not an anomaly when he took a knee to protest against racist violence against African-Americans. You know, this is someone who was following in the traditions of athletes before him. And so there's this long history of athletes as political actors and sports serving as political purposes. And because it's presumed to be this entertainment, this form of mindless pleasure, I think it offers a fascinating window into some of these phenomena. Yeah, absolutely. And um, well, let's get into, let's get into the book. Um, so chapter one of Empire and Waves is entitled How Surfing Became American, The Imperial Roots of Modern Surf Culture. Tell us a little bit about surfing in Hawaii before Captain Cook arrived and how things changed once uh, American whalers and missionaries arrived and the slide towards American colonialism. Sure. Well, modern surfing, what we think of as surfing today, uh, really has its roots in Hawaii and Polynesian more broadly, but especially in Hawaii. And there is evidence of wave riding elsewhere, um, West Africa, for example. Um, Ooh, have you have you seen that written up? Uh, uh, sorry so to on West Africa, yeah, yeah. Kevin Dawson is a he's a wonderful historian uh, in California. He's at the University of California Merced. Okay. Um, he's done a lot of work on this issue. Okay. He had an article that appeared in the Journal of American History some time ago. Uh, it won the, the Louis Pelser Award. Um, in the Journal of American History. And then he published a book a couple of years ago, um, I think it was with the University of Pennsylvania Press. Um, it's not just about surfing in West Africa. It's about um, Africans and enslaved Africans as water people. And that includes a focus on, on water sports such as surfing. Uh, and he looked back at, at some of the accounts written by Europeans who sailed the coast of West Africa. Um, and in fact, recording recorded evidence of wave riding, um, I believe, even before it was recorded in the case of Hawaii. Um, so there is this, this deep history there. It appeared to be something different. Um, you know, there's, it, it appeared to be more prone surfing, um, people riding on boards on their stomachs rather than standing up. Um, although even in, you know, pre-contact Hawaii, it, it's probable that, that much of the wave riding that was happening was, was people riding prone as well. Yeah. Some standing up, but you know, it's a lot easier to ride a wave when you're on your stomach than, than when you're standing up. That's fascinating. And I had, sorry, I had to interrupt because um, when I was in graduate school in the 1990s, working in the colonial archives in France, where I was studying um, Hanoi, I, uh, in an anthropology journal uh, from the 1950s, I found an anthropologist, French anthropologist talking about surfing in West Africa. And I, I, didn't know anybody else had worked on it. I thought I had made a special find, but oh well. Um, and I, I know I've interrupted the flow here, but I, one of the reasons why I didn't write that up it was I was actually very concerned, coming from Hawaii myself, about um, the reception amongst the Hawaiian sovereignty movement mm. and the Hawaiian nationalist movement. And I didn't didn't really want to go there, but I've thought about revisiting that. But I'm going to look up that literature anyway. I apologize for the interruption, but um, so so. Surfing in Hawaii when Captain Cook arrives, 
So at that point, there was, you know, a, a long tradition of, of Hawaiians riding waves. I mean, from what we know of pre-contact Hawaii, um, this was a, a fascinating, rich, diverse society that managed to create time for leisure among the Hawaiian people. They had, you know, established a society that allowed for, for that sort of leisure time. And among the leisure activities that Hawaiians pursued was, was surfing. And this was a, an activity that was done by by Hawaiians of all ages, um, both men and women of all classes. Um, there were certain things that might be reserved for members of the Hawaiian royalty, um, but by and large, this was an activity that all Hawaiians did and was very popular. Um, that changed um, in the early 19th century, not so much because Hawaiians gave up their, their joy for surfing and their fascination with the sport, um, but because of two related phenomena. Um, one of these was, of course, you know, Captain Cook sailing upon Hawaii and with a number of other Europeans and later Americans following him, the introduction of pathogens into Hawaii that have a, had a devastating impact on the native Hawaiian population. You know, from the time of contact uh, up until the late 19th century, um, I mean, we don't know you know, the, the numbers necessarily pre-contact, but there's been a number of demographic studies that have posited various figures. Um, but in all likelihood, um, well in excess of 90% of the Hawaiian population perished by the end of the late 19th century as a result of these pathogens. Then at the same time that Hawaiians were being biologically assaulted by these pathogens, you had, especially American missionaries arriving. This happened in 1820 and after. Um, these were people who came to Hawaii because they wanted to civilize, you know, so-called civilize the Hawaiian people. And they saw surfing as incompatible with that civilizing mission. And they did so for several reasons. Um, one of which was that it was a form of leisure. And these Americans, you know, very much grounded in that Protestant work ethic, thought that this um, promoted laziness, a lack of industriousness, and was therefore a waste of time. And they wanted to, um, they wanted the Hawaiians to abandon that sort of uh, resort to pleasure. At the same time, uh, Hawaiians often did this barely clothed, and thus there was a licentious element to surfing. Um, it could serve as a form of courtship between young people out in the waves, uh, there are stories of, of young people um, who would see each other surfing, be impressed with the, you know, what they saw and maybe head on into the beach for a, a quick tumble um, behind the dunes. Um, and then Hawaiians also were known to gamble on surfing, uh, which was seen as sinful by the missionaries, um, you know, who could ride the biggest wave, who could ride the wave the farthest, um, who could do the coolest maneuvers, I suppose, on, on some of these waves. Um, and all of these things interfered with what the Protestant missionaries believed was appropriate civilized behavior. Now, they never actually banned surfing, but they certainly discouraged it. And you can find in the journals and newspapers written by some of these missionaries um, references to the sinful nature of these activities, um, you know, something that Hawaiians ought not to be doing. And Hawaiians did continue to surf. Um, you know, some may have been turned off um, or turned away from the sport um, as a result of, of the pleading by these missionaries, but many others did continue to surf. And Hawaiian surfing never went away. It persisted into the early 20th century. It has never, in fact, gone away. But when we get to the early 20th century, we're getting to something else, and I'll get to yeah, that. Yeah, revival. Yeah. And, uh, um, 
I mean, and, and this was part and parcel of the, the missionary assault on a wide aspect of Hawaiian culture, hula dance, melee chant, and so many other things that the, uh, these New England Protestant missionaries whose Calvinists really deemed as sinful and, and tried to eradicate. And, and later in the century, during the, um, the first Hawaiian Renaissance under Kalakaua, where he and the Mary, so-called Mary Monarch who brought back hula, brought back um, many of these traditions, he actually promoted surfing as a way to revitalize the Hawaiian population. But as we, as we get into the early 20th century, and this is, this is really starts to get to your argument, um, surfing actually plays a role in the American attempts to make Hawaii a colony. Um, and you, you talk about a couple of individuals, and one of them stands out is Alexander Hume Ford. And what was his role in this context, uh, context of colonizing Hawaii? So Alexander Hume Ford's a really interesting character. Um, he's someone who's well-known among people who pay attention to surfing. He's often been valorized in, in the surfing literature as this South Carolinian who showed up in the islands in the early 20th century, discovered, discovered surfing, got stoked, and helped to popularize it. Um, well, in the sort of the, the worst histories, um, helped to revive it after it had disappeared. Um, you know, the Hawaiians apparently had abandoned this under these, these faux histories. Um, and Alexander Hugh Ford uh, worked to, to revive it, to bring it back. Um, now, that's a misreading of history. And there have been some scholars who've done some, some really good work on this issue. Um, Isaiah Halukanihi Walker is one who wrote a book called Waves of Resistance um, that's about the surfing Hawaiian, uh, Hawaiian surfing history, uh, an, an excellent book, and, and he demolishes this myth. Patrick Moser is another who's written about this um, and, you know, helped to demonstrate Hawaiian surfing never went away. Um, it may have been less obvious because of that demographic collapse of the Hawaiian population, but Hawaiians continued to surf. When Alexander Hume Ford showed up in the islands as a journalist in the early 20th century, it, he did indeed discover surfing. Um, but what he d- tried to do was not revive it, really appropriate it um, for the, the Haole population. Up until that point, the assumption had been that only Native Hawaiian people were capable of surfing. Uh, that Howleys who had tried it had been unsuccessful. Mark Twain wrote about this in the 19th century, for example. Um, and so in order to help Americanize the sport, to make it something that, that Howleys could do, Alexander Hume Ford founded the Outrigger Canoe Club, uh, which continues to this day uh, on the, the beach at Waikiki. Um, and it served as basically a private social club for Hawaiian elites, including a number of the Hawaiians who had been responsible for the overthrow of the monarchy in the late 19th century um, and helped to push for the annexation by the United States in 1898. And this private club served, served as a place where uh, whites now living in Hawaii could take up the sport. Um, Native Hawaiian people were barred from membership at the Outrigger Canoe Club. It was a segregated club. Um, they formed their own social surfing club that would compete against uh, the, the Outrigger folks. Um, and Alexander Hume Ford, um, you know, was responsible for this. I, I, so I, I grew up on Oahu, and I remember even as a child going to the Outrigger, we weren't members, but every now and then we'd get invited there. And it being a very strange cultural space, like it was very howly. And now I would identify it as this post-colonial legacy of white supremacy and need of decolonization. But, you know, into the 70s, 1980s, probably to the present day, um, it is still 
not quite representative of what's going on in the rest of the island and has this colonial uh, impact. I'm not surprised to hear that at all. Yeah. yeah. The other thing I'll say about Ford, um, and this gets at that, that issue of Ford uh, embracing surfing, is that Alexander Hume Ford um, certainly helped to popularize surfing among non-Hawaiians. Um, but Ford was a, a pretty broad thinker. He was a major booster for Hawaii. Um, he was not himself born in Hawaii, but having arrived in the early 20th century, his vision for this territory, this American territory after 1898, was one of eventual statehood. He hoped Hawaii would become a state of the United States. Um, but even in the interim, he saw Hawaii as a place that could serve as a base of American power in expanding across the Pacific. And that was a vision that he pursued um, in a magazine that he founded that served to popularize that idea. This was something called Mid-Pacific Magazine. Um, it was a, a vision that he pursued in helping to develop the Hawaii Promotion Committee, um, which became the, the, the Hawaiian Tourism Bureau eventually. And his idea was that for this to happen, for the United States to make Hawaii a state, and to embrace Hawaii as a base for American power, there needed to be a greater white presence in the islands. And surfing was a way of encouraging that. What he thought was, if people could be lured to Hawaii as tourists, they would fall in love with the islands and they would stay as settlers. And he recognized that this was essential if Hawaii was gonna become a state because the United States wouldn't allow Hawaii to become a state if it had a non-white majority population. And so he worked hard to create a white majority in Hawaii. And tourism, again, through surfing, surfing being promoted as this masculine activity that, pe that, that people visiting the islands could do. Um, something that of course brought tremendous pleasure, it was healthful, um, that this was a way of bringing people to the islands and ultimately keeping them here. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was this tool to to promote imperialism and eventually annexation. Um, right. I guess this was after annexation. So um, chapter two uh, em of Empire and Waves is entitled "A World Made Safe for Discovery: Travel, Culture, Cultural Diplomacy, and the Politics of Surf Exploration." You speak to the way in which uh, surf tourism was tied to Cold War politics and this, sure. uh, these connections. Yeah, it's a, you know, I think this is a, a fascinating history that most surfers don't fully understand and appreciate. Um, you know, you know, Mike, as a surfer that, you know, an in, in essential element of, of modern surf culture is the tourist experience, right? Yeah, it, is, it is truly essential. The, the endless summer, the surf safari, I mean, it's, yeah. This is what surfers do. You know, we don't just surf our local breaks. We go travel and we go find places because we want to find wonderful ways without a lot of people on them. Um, and you get to see something of the world at the same time. And so surf tourism, I mean, today it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, it's impossible to think about surfing without thinking about surf tourism. And this wasn't always the case, of course, um, but it became the case um, after the Second World War. And this happened for a couple of reasons, um, one of which was in the wake of World War II, there was an enormous growth in the American middle class. And that enabled people to be able to engage in greater leisure activities. And the growth of that middle class coincided with, in the post-World War II period, the onset of the Cold War. And one of the places that really benefited from Cold War defense spending was Southern California. 
And so what you had was the growth of the aerospace industry in Southern California brought all sorts of engineers to the area. They had families, their kids grew up by the beach and took up surfing. Um, so that was, that was a really important piece of, of all of this. Now, the other one, of course, was the onset of- Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but it's also that Southern California uh, surf culture that develops, you, um, you note, is very similar to issues around race in Hawaii, where these are, the, the beaches become white social spaces, correct? And surfing becomes very much a white sport, not a Mexican-American sport. That's right. Yes. Um, you know, sometimes the beaches are explicitly segregated. Mm -hmm. Other times they're just social pressure to keep people of color out. They certainly are made not to feel welcome. Um, these are spaces that are, are imagined as white spaces. And, um, and so surfing becomes increasingly associated with whiteness, even though it's a sport that originated, of course, with, with Hawaiians. Um, by the mid-20th century, it's largely seen as something that white people do. Yeah, the image of the surfer is the blonde kid. Right. Of course, blonde yeah. white kid. That's right. Um, so the other the other thing that coincides with the growth of the American middle class and the ability of them people to engage in greater leisure activities is the onset of the jet age. Um, you have you know jet engines now um, on planes that can take people around the world in a matter of hours. What had previously been you know long journeys, um, you know prior to even air travel. I mean these were you know. If one was traveling abroad, this wasn't something that one did for a week. You know, you had to, to commit a month or two to this because it took a long time to get places and the infrastructure didn't exist to, to make, be able to make these quick jaunts. That changed after the Second World War with the jet age. And people were able to travel more and more around the world quickly. And that opened up much of the world to surf exploration. And so you saw that, that twin phenomenon of the growth of the middle class and the increasing ability to travel that lent itself to the growth of surf tourism. Now, some of this early on was Californians traveling to Hawaii, for example, and the North Shore became a popular destination during that period. But then you also saw this, this growing emphasis on international travel and probably no uh, cultural product did more to promote that idea than the, the documentary film, The Endless Summer. Um, which is considered probably, you know, the great surfing film, um, even to this day. I mean, it is considered, you know, kind of the, the granddaddy of them all um, and, and was an enormous commercial success when it came out. Now, it actually came out in waves. It, it started um, in 1963, 1964 by playing on the, the surf circuit, um, which is, you know, high school and civic center auditoriums on coasts in California or the East Coast or Australia, even South Africa. Um, but Bruce Brown, who made The Endless Summer, thought he had a film that might actually appeal to non-surfing audiences. He eventually uh, blew it up into, I think, a 35 millimeter print, um, rented a theater in the middle of the United States in Wichita, Kansas, um, figured if he can get an audience in Wichita, he can get an audience in anywhere. And it sold to record crowds there. Um, people absolutely love The Endless Summer. Um, he then took it to New York, where he uh, showed it there, uh, and it played for, I don't remember the number of weeks, but I mean, some, you know, long span, 54 weeks, something like that, um, and then took off around the United States and around the world. It became, in fact, the most commercially successful documentary film in history up until the Michael Moore age. Um, so this was, you know, an enormous success. But the end of the summer also gets us into that question that you asked about cultural diplomacy and surfing. Right. So there's a there's a, a story of the endless summer that I think most surfers aren't familiar with. And it's actually in the end a failed story. And I'll say what I mean by that. Um, in 1967, 
the U.S. State Department selected The Endless Summer as, as one of the films that it was going to show at that year's Moscow Film Festival. Now, the Moscow Film Festival, if you think about the Cold War, of course, this was the United States pitted against the Soviet Union um, and, you know, their various allies on, on both sides. This was largely an ideological war. And the State Department saw in The Endless Summer I imagine at least, uh, the internal documents don't tell us as much about this as I'd like, but saw in this the quintessentially American story during the Cold War. Because The Endless Summer is about two young American men who travel around the world looking for waves. They meet local people. It's a fun story. And if you've seen The Endless Summer, I mean, it is. It's a brilliant film on many levels. It's embarrassing on others. I mean, the racism in the film is something. It's it's super racist. They they go to Senegal and they go to South Africa. and Yes. I mean, it's it's got its problems. But it's it's of of the time period. It's of the time period. It is. It was a a brilliant film for its time. Um, And, you know, there's a reason that people that people watched it and loved it. Yeah, yeah. And so it is this very quintessential American story of two young Americans who have the time and the resources to be able to do that. Capitalism allows that. You know, when you're thinking about the Cold War, communism, now, you know, you don't see communists traveling around the world surfing. It's capitalists who can do that. These are people who have the freedom to do it. Their government isn't telling them, no, you can't leave the country, you can't travel. Um, and so they're able to Ch- do Charlie don't surf. <laughs> well, there's an interesting story with that too. Um, but it's you know, but that's the basic idea, right? That uh, that this is this is a story about capitalism and freedom, about people being able to travel the world, look for waves, and of course the friendly interactions that they have with local people wherever they go. And so, in that way, it's a, it's a brilliant story of the United States during the Cold War. And it's no surprise that the U.S. State Department might have seen this as an excellent choice for the film festival. Now, in the end, just days before the festival happened, um, the Soviets told the United States that they would only be able to show one documentary film, and the Americans had selected two. One of them was The Endless Summer. The other is a film called Young Americans, which was about a group of American choral singers who travel around the country performing before audiences, often singing patriotic songs. And given that this was, you know, number of very patriotic Americans making the decisions about which film would show, they chose to show Young Americans rather than The Endless Summer. Now, in the end, Young Americans didn't even show because the Soviets disallowed it. They saw it as crude propaganda. And in this way, I think it was probably a really poor choice for the U.S. State Department. And I say that because both films, I think, are, you know, outstanding sources of American propaganda. But one is much more subtle, The the Endless Summer, than the other. Um, and, and I think the, the state department blew it in that way. That, that makes me think about one of the most fascinating moments in, in global culture and that I saw was a few, uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, I was surfing in Bali, Indonesia, and I pelled out into a lineup and it was all, it was all white people out there and, um, they were speaking a different language and they were all speaking Russian. Mm-hmm. The, the entire lineup was speaking Russian and a couple of them could actually surf pretty well. And, I started chatting with them and they, um, they were all from Vladivostok, which is, you know, just fly due South and, you know, post Soviet union, new money. They, they were spending half the year in Bali. And so there was a crew of Russian surfers from greater Siberia, which absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So chapter three um, in empire and waves takes us to a part of the world. I'm most professionally and personally familiar with, um, Southeast Asia. This chapter is Paradise Found, 
the discovery of Indonesia and the surfing imagination. And as I mentioned, it was, it was a little rough for me to read this chapter because uh, next week I was supposed to be flying to Indonesia on my surfing safari. Um, but I had to cancel my trip due to the COVID-19 crisis. Um, so it was a little rough to read. And, you know, it would have marked 30 years since my first uh, visit to Indonesia. Um, but anyway, the, um, what's the significance of Indonesia to the history of surfing? And, and, and as, as you alluded to in, in, when we started the interview, what is surfing ignored about Indonesia? Um, so Indonesia uh, became popular with surfers, um, especially in the early 1970s. Uh, apparently, there were a number of people, flight attendants mostly, as I understand it, who were, were surfing in Indonesia in, in the late 1960s. And there's actually even an earlier history of surfing in Indonesia, in Bali in particular, that goes back to the 1920s, 1930s. Um, but it, that was a, you know, sort of an isolated history. It, it didn't take root at that point. Um, it was really in the early 1970s that, that Indonesia came, became a major surfing destination. Um, and that was a, an important moment in Indonesian history. In the mid-1960s in Indonesia, this is something I know you've explored in other shows that you've done, um, Indonesia underwent a major convulsion of political violence, 1965 and 66 in particular. Um, there was an overthrow, it was gradual, but an overthrow of a neutralist Indonesian government led by a man named Sukarno um, by a military regime led by Suharto. And Suharto uh, ended up seizing the reins of power in Indonesia by, um, you know, the, the, lab, the second half of the 1960s. And as part of that process, there were widespread massacres against those that Suharto considered political enemies. Now, Suharto was a man of the right. His political enemies were members uh, or alleged members or alleged sympathizers of the Indonesian Communist Party, which was one of the world's largest communist parties at the time. Hundreds of thousands of people uh, at minimum were killed. Uh, the CIA estimated fairly conservatively 500,000. Uh, and the CIA also called this one of the worst mass murders of the 20th century. It was a horrific period um, that Indonesia still has not fully come to terms with to this day. So that was the, the context in which... And in listeners, there's two podcasts I recorded just this week, one with John Rusa and the other with Vincent uh, Evans on uh, these massacres and the rise of Suharto. So uh, New Books listeners, check those out. Yeah, and I, and I encourage people to do so because this is a really important history. Um, so it, it was in this context that surfers began arriving in Indonesia in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Now, at that time, Indonesia was a military dictatorship, um, and Suharto remained in power for decades. It wasn't until the late 1990s that he finally um, was, was overthrown um, by a, a democratic movement. Um, so that was a, a long time coming. In Indonesia, there had been those massacres in the mid-1960s, but by the early 1970s, still hundreds of thousands of political prisoners across the island. Amnesty International referred to Indonesia as an Asian gulag. Um, it was a place that was, was absolutely miserable um, in human rights terms. But you would never know this from looking at the accounts of surfers in the 1970s. 
when Indonesia starts showing up in surfing films, and the first was a film called Morning of the Earth, which was an Australian film, another of these classic surfing films. It's, it's, um, it, it, is a, it is a pretty fabulous film, and, and you know, for that sort of psychedelic genre is really gorgeous. It is. It's a beautiful film. It's got a great soundtrack. It's fascinating to watch. It's a, it's a really interesting, you know, as historians, you and I would think of this as a fascinating primary source yes, of yeah. the early 1970s. And it is. And like The End of the Summer, I mean, it's a great film. It's got its flaws. It's also <laughs> <But> it, very <laughs> cringeworthy. <laughs> but it very is, cringeworthy. Yes, it is. But it's a great film. Um, but you would get no sense from watching Morning of the Earth or looking at Surfer Magazine in the early 1970s of any of the political situation in Indonesia. Instead, Indonesia appears as this you know, warm water paradise of flawless, empty waves, smiling, brown-skinned people, um, a place where surfers could come, spend months exploring, doing nothing but having a great time. And that was not the Indonesia as many Indonesians lived it, right? That might have been the surfing imagination of Indonesia, but that wasn't the, the real Indonesia uh, that the local people experienced. Nevertheless, that idea of Indonesia as an Asian gulag, as Amnesty International referred to it as, never penetrated the surfing imagination. And this became, you know, in my opinion, um, that sort of, you know, fantastical view of Indonesia, particularly difficult to sustain as we move into the mid-1970s. And I say that because in 1975, in Indonesia, which is a nation of thousands of islands, invaded and occupied East Timor. Now, there's a, you know, fascinating history with East Timor, and I won't get into all of it here, but, but Timor is an island in the southern part of the Indonesian archipelago. And the western half of the island had been part of Indonesia following Indonesian independence. The eastern part of the island had been a Portuguese colony. And when Portugal withdrew in the mid-1970s, following the fall of the Salazar dictatorship in that country, Indonesia decided to invade and occupy the country and did so. And that ushered in a period of extraordinary brutality in which the best estimates are somewhere between a quarter and a third of the Timorese population died at the hands of Indonesia. Um, you know, when you think about, say, the Khmer Rouge genocide in Cambodia, there you're talking about a fifth to a quarter of the population. So proportionally, we're talking here about a larger percentage of the population perishing in East Timor than in the killing fields of Cambodia, which we think of as one of the worst genocidal um, uh, areas of the 20th century. And, and, it, and the, the actions of the Indonesian army fit with other definitions of genocide, such as the attempt to eradicate um, indigenous languages, uh, trying to push people away from Catholicism or animist religions and towards Islam, um, uh, so-called battlefield adoptions, where soldiers would take children and, quote, adopt them. But these, these are all in the, in the UN framework for genocidal acts. That's right. And, and a number of genocide scholars have, in fact, written quite a bit about East Timor, um, fitting within that classic definition of, yeah. of genocide. Um, and so this is unfolding in the 1970s, the late 19, mid to late 1970s, as surfers are descending on the Indonesian archipelago, including the island of Timor, <laughs> looking for, for surf. But none of this seems to penetrate the surfing imagination. And I was fascinated by this. I thought this was a, you know, a really interesting phenomenon. And so I decided to explore that in chapter three of the book, as well as the efforts by the Indonesian regime, this brutal regime, you know, 
imprisoning thousands of political prisoners, engaging in genocide in East Timor, its effort to use surfing to try to both increase tourism to the Indonesian archipelago, as well as to use surfing as a means of opening up development in islands beyond Bali. Um, and in fact, the Indonesian regime even paid for junkets for surfers to go to places like Lombok, which is to the east of Bali, um, to look for new waves because the idea was if surfers discover waves in some of these islands, they're going to travel to these other islands and that's going to help to promote economic development. If you build it, they will come. If you, if you, find, it, if you find it, they will come. Exactly. Yep. And, uh, and so that's what I explored in that chapter, the way that surf tourism embraced a part of the world that had a, a very bloody and brutal history without ever coming to terms with that history, creating this fantastical portrait of an Indonesian archipelago that's a, a tropical playground for visiting surfers without taking into account the actual realities on the ground. And it, I found that chapter so fascinating because it resonates with what you talked about earlier with uh, Alexander Hume Ford and using surfing for uh, for purposes, the same, very similar purposes in Hawaii, bringing in capital and uh, and sort of, uh, I, I guess now we call it sort of soft diplomacy or uh, soft power, soft power is the term. That's right. So, uh, chapter four um, Empire in, of Empire in Waves uh, takes an interesting turn as we go to South Africa. And the chapter is called When Surfing Discovered It Was Political, Confronting South African Apartheid. Um, growing up in Hawaii as a, as a surfer, one of my heroes was Dane Kealoha, uh, a native Hawaiian surfer, a professional surfer. Um, we, you know, made, we were so proud of him. And then these stories came out about when Dane uh, went to uh, South Africa. and um, the treatment he faced from the apartheid regime there. And, and this was, I mean, I'm a classic example. This, this was the first time I had ever heard of apartheid when uh, my, my local surf hero uh, faced this. So tell us, tell us about the, um, the history of uh, apartheid and, and also the opposition to apartheid and, uh, and the history of surfing. Sure. Well, South Africa, um, you know, the history of South African apartheid goes back further than the, the surfers boycott of South Africa, which I'll get to in a, a moment. Um, that's something that really picked up steam in the mid 1980s, but, but apartheid goes back decades earlier than that. Um, and apartheid had really been the defining feature of South African political life in the post-World War II period. Um, this was how much of the world knew South Africa. You had a small white minority that was governing uh, a nation with a black majority and doing so through a violent system of separation in which black South Africans had to live in Bantustans or segregated communities. They needed passes to visit white areas. They were constantly subject to violence. And of course, there was a, an anti-apartheid movement that emerged of mostly black South Africans um, against this very brutal um, racist regime. Now, that picked up international support. And so by the 1970s, you see a growing anti-apartheid movement around the world, including with respect to sport. South Africans tend to be quite fanatical about sport, um, you know, rugby, soccer, cricket, um, and they have a very large profile in some of these sports. And some, people, some listeners may have seen the, was it Matt Damon film, Invictus? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, and so, you know, South Africans, as 
you know, these are white South Africans, especially as they're coming to terms with the fact that their nation is increasingly being treated as an international pariah. The goal of the anti-apartheid movement was to get those folks to question whether this was worth it, right? Is it worth sustaining the system of white supremacy in the face of international condemnation and isolation? So a boycott movement began against South Africa. Um, South Africa was, in fact, barred from the Olympic Games. And this was something that was sort of tangentially addressed by surfers. It sort of existed on the, the margins of surfing through the 1960s and 70s. Um, surfing magazine, Surfer in particular, picked up on this issue, um, not so much directly, but indirectly. They began re- running features on South Africa, uh, which had been popularized by Bruce Brown's film, The Endless Summer. I mean, for those who have seen the film, you know that, that the climax of this film is the discovery of what Bruce Brown alleges is a perfect wave at a place called Cape St. Francis in South Africa. And by all intents and appearances, I mean, it looks to be uh, a perfect wave. And, you know, that had the effect of, of drawing more and more surfers to, to South Africa to visit the place. Many discovered, in fact, Cape St. Francis wasn't what Bruce Brown made it out to be. Um, but nevertheless, that was helped to draw people to the, the country. And so surfing publications took up South Africa in the 1960s. Surfer ran a profile at one point on the country that had a, a photograph of uh, a young black South African man walking on the beach and a couple of surfers, white surfers with boards in hand, walking behind him. And the caption said something like, you know, this young South African man can only watch the surfers because beaches in South Africa are segregated. And I'm paraphrasing here. I don't remember the precise language, but that generated incredible reader response. In fact, more letters to the magazine than anything else in the history of the publication to that point. Um, And a debate emerged in the magazine over whether surfers ought to continue going to South Africa or whether they should boycott the place. And there's a lot of nuance in this this conversation. I I won't fully dive into it here, but this begins a conversation about the place of South Africa in the global surfing community. Because outside of the United States and Australia, South Africa at that time had probably the most flourishing surf culture on the planet. Now, fast forward through the the 1970s into the 1980s. Professional surfing grows by the late 1970s into the 1980s. And South Africa is one of the stops on surfing's world tour. There are a couple of important contests in the country. And the surfers who compete in these contests realize that they're surfing in a place that isn't like others where they've been. Now, most of these surfers are white and they witness this, but don't really do anything about it. Some of these are surfers of color, such as Dainty Aloha, uh, Eddie Aikau, who was a Hawaiian surfer, a legendary Hawaiian surfer. Even, even bigger legend. I mean, he is even bigger. Saint light, Saint light figure in Hawaii. That's right. Um, and they experience the racism of South African apartheid firsthand because while they're not South African, their dark skin marks them as different and they become subject to the segregation and the racist hostility that existed in South Africa. And they often felt betrayed by some of their fellow surfers who tended to just look the other way. You know, these are white surfers, particularly in the case of Eddie Aikau, who was subject to this sort of racist treatment. And Howley surfers from Hawaii who were competing in the country with him sort of just, you know, turned their heads, didn't respond in the way that that he expected uh, his fellow Hawaiians to, to respond. And 
you know, Ikal wrote of his experience in South Africa that this was one of the scariest experiences of his life. Um, he was, you know, appalled by what happened. So by the mid 1980s, um, South Africa is subject to, you know, an increasingly popular international anti-apartheid movement. Uh, and surfers, a number of them at least, feel like they're, this is something that they can no longer ignore. And this really comes to a head then when Tom Carroll, who was an Australian surfer, won the world championship at Bells Beach in Australia. And immediately after securing that victory, announces that he will no longer compete in South Africa because of apartheid. And he's almost immediately joined by Tom Curran, who's a Californian who goes on to win several world championships, be one of the most influential surfers of... Arguably the greatest surfer of all time, but... Just a remarkable... Arguable. (laughs) And Martin Potter, who was a British national but grew up in South Africa, uh, a white surfer who found himself appalled by what he saw in the country and announced that he no longer would compete in South Africa as well. Shane Horan was a fourth professional surfer in Australia who also announced that he would no longer compete in South Africa. And, and so, Shane Horan is probably the, the most stereotypical looking surfer ever. He is a blonde, good looking, I mean, he's just so blonde. He's the heart of whiteness. But uh, He is, yeah. indeed. Uh, very influential. Uh, yeah, in yeah very, very influential and very... We can talk about Shane Haran for hours, but go on. Right. Uh, Shane Haran did not stick with the boycott. He ended yeah. up going back to South Africa competing, competing though he wrote a, you know, his, his protest statement was to write free Mandela on his surfboard, um, but nevertheless went back. But, but Tom Curran, Tom Carroll, and Martin Potter stuck with the boycott for years, and they did so at great personal sacrifice. Um, you know, this hurt them in terms of earning points and ratings on the professional circuit. It also cost them money because the professional surfing league, it was known as the, um, the ASP, the association of surfing professionals. It's no longer called that, but at the time it was refused to boycott South Africa. This was unlike other international sporting federations. And not only did they refuse to boycott South Africa, but they fined surfers who refused to compete there for political reasons. Uh, nevertheless, surfers refused to go. And those three that I mentioned, Curran, Carol, and Potter, were the most significant three. But by the late 1980s, dozens of professional surfers were not competing. And all, all, not all of them were explicitly stating that they were doing so for political reasons. And there were reasons why they may not have been fully honest about that. But it became quite clear that by the late 1980s, international surfing didn't have much of a future in South Africa. And it's not long after that. And this is not because of surfers. I mean, this is because of, because of much larger global phenomena. But surfers did at least play some role in contributing to that international isolation of South Africa, the condemnation of the racist white supremacy in the country um, that helped to bring about the end of apartheid. And so for many surfers, this was their real, this was their first engagement with global politics. Now, they may not have seen what they were doing in political terms. Tom Carroll told me, you know, he was just taking a moral stand. Um, But these were things that were ultimately political decisions. And this was one of those first times that surfers really began to conceive of themselves as political actors. Yeah, you know, if you put out a second edition of the book, you can cite me as evidence of teenage Howley in Hawaii who came to political consciousness because of this. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Um, so chapter five, uh, 
industrial surfing, the commodification of experience. And this engages the way in which neoliberalism sucks the life out of everything we love and turns it into a commodity. You know, as a second generation surfer, I, who, who was raised by my father to a board surf contest and the marketing of uh, our, our lifestyle, I found this chapter just absolutely enraging. Uh, and thanks to you, I've developed a particular loathing for the Hollister clothing line. Um, I was actually uh, work teaching in Shanghai uh, for a couple of summers and there was a, a big Hollister outlet in the, the mega mall next to our, the university in Shanghai. And I was giving my colleagues lectures about how awful this company is and citing your book. Um, and uh, in this chapter, there's, there's a quote that I they absolutely love um, for the quote. And also because it's from a friend of mine, uh, Ryan Buell, who's a wetsuit maker. And uh, uh, Ryan said, how many people surf? Not many. How many pretend to surf? A lot. And that whole aspect of the, uh, the commodification of surf culture and selling it to people who have nothing to do with the ocean. Um, I, you know, that's, again, coming from the surfing community, it just makes my brain explode. So, so tell us about how they, they sold my, uh, my life. <laughs> oh. and my father's life. <laughs> well, that's an interesting way of introducing the question. Um, so surfing, there's long been a tension in surfing um, between those who, I don't like this term, but it's used a lot. Those who see themselves as soul surfers. Um, oh, use, versus, use the term. It's fine. So uh, <laughs> versus those who, um, who, you know, are sort of on the competitive circuit who have embraced the professionalization of, of surfing. And there's been a, a large industry that's developed alongside the professionaliz- professionalization of the, the sport. Um, you have surfwear brands, for example, that began as small operations. Many of them really just intended to subsidize the ability of the people who started them to surf, to be able to surf in their communities or to travel and surf. These are companies such as Quicksilver, Rip Curl, Billabong, uh, O'Neill. Um, some of these involved also as in wetsuit manufacturing, O'Neill probably being the most notable, notable example there, though Rip Curl also uh, began as a wetsuit company. Um, they began as small operations, but by the late 20th century, it has emerged as, at least in some cases, multi-billion dollar corporations. I mean, Quicksilver is probably the best example of this. It's a publicly owned company incorporated in Delaware um, that is publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And Quicksilver has gone through its own travails in more recent years, but, you know, is one of these brands that started small grew enormous and did so not by selling to surfers, but rather increasingly to people who didn't surf, who thought surfing was cool. Um, You know, surfing has this sort of coolness associated with it. It's appealing to people in Minnesota, Ohio, Indiana, and Hollister is a company that really tapped into that. Now, Hollister, unlike the others, had no previous association with surfing. Um, And you know, Hollister, there's a fascinating story associated with this. Mike Jeffries, who was the, the CEO of Abercrombie & Fitch, um, started the Hollister brand um, and created this fictional corporate history for the brand uh, that suggested that it was rooted in um, a guy named Hollister who traveled the world, became an importer in California of South Pacific goods. Um, he was there at the beginnings in California surf culture, um, and the Hollister brand is an outgrowth of that. Now, none of this is true, 
but it's they, a way, they, they sell this as their their origin myth. I mean, oh my, just it is so about right? Um, and that's yeah. the thing. So there's this tension in the surfing world between not so much corporate surfing or not corporate surfing, although that tension still exists a bit, but rather which corporations are the better ones. And, and authenticity, authenticity, right? Authenticity, right? So that it's, you know, it's, it's the, the brands that emerged out of surf culture, Quicksilver, O'Neill, and so on, that are the authentic brands that surfers should be embracing. And then the non-authentic ones, uh, you know, the industry refers to these as the non-endemics. Um, this is Nike, Hollister, Target, um, who've tried to tap into that surfing market and largely unsuccessfully. Although Hollister, I mean, it's, you know, it's abhorred by, by surfers, but it's enormously popular elsewhere around the country. They were doing good business in the mall in China, in Shanghai. They were doing great business. <laughs> That's right. Um, and so this, you know, what I explore in that chapter is, chapter is really that tension um, between this corporatization of surfing as an industry and uh, the more organic roots of surfing and the way that with surfing's industrialization, it's also tapped into the global neoliberal forces that many surfers, I think, probably would abhor. And here I'm talking about, you know, the reliance, for example, on these large surfware brands on cheap labor in, you know, countries such as Indonesia that, you know, surfers might see as a, a nirvana. Um, but that's because they're not visiting the sweatshops where some of these surfware brands are, are making their goods. And, um, and so what you see with the growth of surfing is a growing association between surfing as a sport, as an industry, and neoliberalism uh, in ways that have led to a number of questions about where surfing is going in the 21st century. Yeah, and, it's, and it's particularly poignant for surfing because it's born out of this sense of freedom and this an individual communion with nature. I mean, there's a lot of sort of, you know, sort of spiritual talk. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you from Santa Cruz, California, so forgive me, but it's, it has this, yeah, this soul surfer vibe and the corporate entities just seem to be just so diametrically opposed to, to all of that. But um, it's what's happening in money, money, big money has come in, big money has come in. I mean, there's, there's so many other issues I'd love to talk to you about, but we were, we're definitely uh, running out of time, but I, um, I, you know, I just want to say that I'd love to get your thoughts on the Olympics and which I think is just the most uncool thing for surfing ever and, and wave pools, which is this technological abomination. But um, I want to finish off asking you, um, about something you touch on in the epilogue, um, and this is the issue of gender and surfing, and particularly women's representation or or the lack thereof. Um, I'm good family friends with Sarah Gerhardt, who's famous for being the first woman to surf Mavericks, which is this absolutely terrifying and 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 deadly wave in Northern California, where two prominent surfers have died, and she's the, famous for being the first worm, woman to surf there. Um, but, and she really stands out because if you travel around the world, most surfing lineups, most surfing beaches are uh, homosocial environments. There's very, very few women in the lineup. Could you say a few words on gender, women, and surfing? Sure. Um, well, there's, you know, there's, there's sort of a prehistory of gender and surfing, which is actually, you know, one that I, I think um, is overlooked, but, but fascinating. And that is, you know, when we think about the modern, uh, the modern sport and its origins in Hawaii, um, women were active participants in surf culture. 
in pre-contact Hawaii. And there's a, a long, rich history of women as surfers. And that extends... You see that in the colonial era lithographs. That's right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, women as, as surfers. It's probably, really, probably drove those New Englanders absolutely nuts. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, that was part of the problem, right? Is because women, you, know, no. you, don't, you don't go out surfing in you know, heavy clothing like the New England missionaries were wearing, this heavy wool clothing. You go out doing it without clothes on because it's much easier to do it that way. You can't surf in that heavy sort of clothing. And that was that promotion of licentiousness that, that drove the missionaries crazy. Um, and so you do have women, you know, among, um, you know, we don't know when this sport actually began or how, but at least going back to that early history of surfing, uh, the pre-contact history, women as active participants in this, this pastime, this sport. That begins to change. Women are always still surfing, but, but become a much more marginal part of the sport with the Americanization in the 20th century. And, you know, certainly when I was growing up in, in Southern California, it was a rare session when we would see, um, you know, someone who wasn't male out in the lineup. Um, you know, they were a, um, a very uh, rare presence in, uh, in surfing lineups. They were there. Um, and there were women surfing. In fact, it was a, a woman who helped to popularize the idea of surfing in the 1950s, at least outside of surfing communities. And that the was the G word, the G word, right? Exactly. Digit, right. Yeah. You know, the, the first Hollywood surf film um, and somebody who, you know, uh, really, I think, demonstrated why people like to surf. I mean, she was stoked by what she was doing there. Um, and so the women, you know, they were there. Um, but, you know, she's the only one surfing uh, who's not a, a man in that film. Mostly this was a male space. And it was not just a male space, but a hyper-masculine space. Um, surfing was something that, that manly men did. Um, women existed in surf culture, but they were the babes on the beach. They were there to be holding the towels for the men for when they came in. Uh, they were there to look good in bikinis. Um, they were there to ogle over the, the men, um, you know, as they're walking down the beach boards in hand. And um, this is something that, that has begun to change, uh, or begun to change, excuse me, in the 21st century, um, even in the, you know, the late 20th century, as a growing number of women have been taking up the sport. There's still a minority out in lineups, but there is a growing presence of women surfers who are not just demonstrating a female presence in the lineup, but also pushing back on that hyper-masculine element of the sport. And, and I think that's a very healthy development, something that, that needs to happen. And so I'm delighted to see the, the growing number of women um, who are embracing surfing um, as something that, that ought to be available for all people to do. Right. And one, one of the recent lawsuits was against the uh, professional contest at Mavericks because, uh, to get women equal representation uh, in the, uh, the competition with, uh, with men. That's right. And, and I will say this for professional surfing, um, it's, it took a big step, unlike other sporting federations, in announcing that it was going to pay men and women competitors the same prize money. It was, you know, if not the first, one of the first uh, sports to, to make that announcement. There's still a long way to go uh, in surfing, um, but those are important steps. Yeah. Although I, I'm going to choose my words carefully here, but one thing I did notice recently, I think in the past year, there was an ad for the um, Women's Pro at Honolulu Bay on Maui, which is a, a right-hand wave. And all the, it was an ad I think I saw on Facebook or something, and, and all the clips of women surfing that they showed, 
the women were doing cutbacks that clearly displayed their derriere. Oh, of course. And, and <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it was, well, okay. <laughs> women are there, but look at, look at the image that's being presented. It was so sexualized. Um, and, oh, this, uh, became a, this became a big problem yeah. uh, with the Roxy Pro yeah. several years ago. Um, when the Roxy Pro, Roxy is the, you know, the, it's a subsidiary of Quicksilver um, that's, that's geared for, for women, girls and women. And they created an advertisement for the Roxy Pro in France where the, the world championship was going to be decided. That was, it was like softcore pornography. Uh, yeah. And there was yeah. a huge pushback on this. It, no one was ever even surfing or riding a wave in it. It was, you know, you know, close-up features of a, a female body um, that could not have sexualized women any more than than it did. Um, it was really quite appalling. But there was tremendous pushback from yeah. well, especially women and girls surfers that's over good. that issue. Um, and that's something that I think we wouldn't have seen maybe 10 or 20 years before. Exactly, yeah. So, so many other things I would love to talk to you about, uh, environmentalism as well. But um, I'm going to have to wrap this up. But as, as we finish, i got two last questions for you. Um, first off, we always ask uh, the authors at the end of these interviews um, for two books they might recommend uh, to to the audience um, related to this uh, topic, either to surfing or to what uh, you have to say about the international politics. Well, um, that's you know I've I've actually given this one a lot of thought. Yeah, <laughs> there are so many books. Um, if I had to recommend two books, I would recommend um, for a broad overview of surfing by someone who's not a professional historian, at least not a trained historian, but really writes very smartly um, and astutely about surfing, even though his background is in journalism. And that's Matt Warshaw's book, The History of Surfing, uh, yep. which is, has, it's a beautiful book. It's a coffee table book, but it's also a wonderful book. And Matt Warshaw probably knows more about surfing than anybody else. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and is a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very important book. So I would recommend that it's a fun book to read again, because it's full of pictures. It's really mm -hmm. beautiful. Yeah. Um, the other book I probably would recommend, uh, is Isaiah Walker's waves of resistance. Yes. He yes. tells really important stories about the history of Hawaiian surfing and moreover stories about the gendered nature of surfing in this book. And I think that's a book people should read. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I would love, love to have talked to you about the, um, the Hawaiian sovereignty movement of the 1970s and the role of surfing there. And then I know that Walker goes into that and it's really waves, waves of resistance. Um, I, I've got one to throw out there. Um, William Finnegan's uh, memoir, Barbarian Days, his uh, a New York, uh, New Yorker author, it won, won the Pulitzer for um, that year. And it's his uh, life, um, a reflection on his life uh, in relationship to surfing. And for me, that book was particularly amazing because as a child, uh, I think he's about 10 or 15 years older than me, but as a child, he lived in the same neighborhood I lived in on Oahu and faced the same problems with um, being a minority Haole in, uh, uh, in Hawaii and, and sort of tensions on the street um, and found solace in these various surf spots around Black Point and Diamond Head. And those were the exact same reefs that I found freedom when I was going through those same issues at the same age and reading, reading barbarian days, I felt like someone was looking over my shoulder and it's such a beautifully written book. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, barbarian days by William Finnegan. 
I so, recommend it as well. Yeah, yeah. Finally, last question. Um, what are you working on now and, and what could we hope to see from you next? Oh, um, well, a, a couple of things. Um, one, not surfing related, but you know, engaging <laughs> my interest in Southeast Asia is a, a project that I'm doing on a guy called Win Tai Bin, who was a Vietnamese national who studied at the University of Washington in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and ended up um, becoming radicalized by the Vietnam War while in the United States and hijacked a plane that was flying back to Vietnam. And he was shot dead point blank by the pilot on the plane. Um, and there's more to this story than I'm letting on, but it's a, it's a really fascinating story. I discovered when I was doing some work in the Pan Am archives at the University of Miami, I had never been familiar with this before. And so um, it's something I'm exploring in, in a bit more depth, but that's for another time. Um, the other thing that's really intrigued me recently is I'm, I might do something on the California beach. Um, I see the beach as a, a fascinating space. In some ways, one of the most democratic spaces in the United States in that it's one of the few places where you have rich and poor, um, white, black, and brown all coming together but in other ways, one of the most undemocratic or even anti-democratic spaces in the United States. There are some real tensions there as well, having to do with coastal access, um, home ownership, and so on. Uh, that Ra race in the California beach. Race is a, is, you know, a critical element of all of this. Um, and so I've begun doing a little bit of work on that issue, but, but that's still a long ways off. Yeah. And you could have a, uh, one of the chapters towards the end could be on the uh, shelter in place orders and the, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic where um, at various, various beaches in California, surfing was banned. Uh, unfortunately in Santa Cruz, we only had one week of surfing being banned and the current rules we're, we're in June right now. The current rules are um, the sand is hot lava between 11 and five. So you can, you can run across the sand to get in the water, but you can't hang out on the beach. And this has led to all sorts of interesting um, reactions from the uh, tourists from the valley coming in. Um, so yeah, that's that's fantastic. And, uh, and hey, I would also love to uh, to have you on the podcast to talk about uh, your most recent book on the silent majority speech. Um, so maybe maybe we can set that up in the near future. So Scott Letterman, thank you for speaking with us today. Um, uh, I know this is not surf season in Duluth, but I hope you get in the water soon. And um, I don't know if I should tell you, but as soon as I log off, I'm going to go check the lane uh, and see what <laughs> the evening session in. I wish you hadn't told me. Have a great time. And thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. So this has been a conversation with Scott Letterman, a professor of history at the University of Minnesota Duluth about his book, Empire and Waves, A Political History of Surfing. I'm Michael Juvan of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. <laughs>